This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, for today's show with Joan C. Williams, an amazing scholar and innovator who has played a central role in advancing the conversation we all have about work, gender, and class in this country. Today, we're going to talk about everything from what works for women at work to the white working class and what we can do in our own lives to create more equality in the workplace for everyone. For those of you who aren't familiar with her work, Joan's a distinguished professor of law and founding director of the Center for Work-Life Law at the University of California, Hastings College of the Law. Her path-breaking work helped create the whole field of work-family studies and modern workplace flexibility policies. She's one of the 10 most cited scholars in her field. She's written 11 books, including the influential and, I would add, highly recommended What Works for Women at Work, which came out in 2014. Her HBR article, What So Many People Don't Get About the U.S. Working Class, has been read over 3.7 million times and is now the most read article in HBR's 90-plus year history. And she's recently released the paperback version of The White Working Class, Overcoming Class Cluelessness in America. As you can imagine, that's only the tip of the iceberg of what Joan has done. But we're going to talk with her today and see just how much we can learn in an hour. There's a lot there. So, Joan, welcome to Women at Work. Delighted to be here, Laura. So, Joan, I want to start off by stepping back in time a bit and talk about why did you found the Center for Work-Life Law? What was going on in, in your professional life at the time, and how did you get that uh, momentum? Well, as I always say, I was an environmental lawyer who had a baby. <laughs> um, and after I had um, a baby, I just realized how much the work world was designed around an ideal worker who had no, took no time off for childbirth and no time off for child-rearing. And that was designed around men's bodies and men's Mm -hmm. life patterns. And I began to look at how mothers fared in court, being a lawyer and all. And um, at the time, one of the leading cases um, involved, it was called Piantanita, and um, there was clear clear discrimination against the mother, but the court said that it was, in effect, it was fine to discriminate against mothers because discrimination based on parenthood was a gender-neutral category, and it wasn't, um, it wasn't covered by federal employment law. So, it, in effect, you could fire a mother and tell her it was because she was a mother, and at least some courts would say, oh, that's fine. Um, and so I got really, really outraged. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And uh, um, meanwhile, I um, my my first child was born in um, 1986, and um, I wrote an article that absolutely actually became at one point one of the most cited law review articles ever written that talked about that ideal worker and how um, if you designed workplaces around men's bodies and men's traditional life patterns, that was sex discrimination. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so it began as me-search, as we say. <laughs> <laughs> so, Joan, so part of it obviously sparked 
came at this time in your life where you were acutely aware of it, but it also sounds like there was a logic pattern to what was happening in the law. Um, tell me if I'm understanding this correctly, that because parenthood, motherhood had not been protected, um, that it was okay to, it was legal to discriminate against mothers. And um, some, yeah, some federal courts seem to be saying that. And so part of the work that had to be done was to create the logic path that got to the fact that this was a form of discrimination that was not acceptable. Exactly. And what we, what I did at that point, the <clears throat> Alfred P. Sloan Foundation began pursuing me mercilessly and throwing money in my general direction. <laughs> And I made the assessment, this was around 2000 or 1999, that we were not going to have major federal legislation to help mothers, and we actually haven't, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, uh, but that I could use the, the law creatively to um, gain rights for mothers. And so that's why I founded the Center for Work-Life Law um, to do that. And at the same time, um, we, in, uh, I, with my, in effect, my law partner for the last 20 years, Cynthia Thomas Calvert, we also founded the Project for Attorney Retention, subsequently folded into work-life law, which um, disseminates best practices. We, for example, basically invented the modern part-time policy that keeps uh, part-timers on partnership track and pays them a proportional wage. And um, a, a funny, quirky thing, my daughter just is a, my daughter's a lawyer, and she just went part-time <laughs> <laughs> using that policy. So you did your me-search, and you also protected her in the process. There you go. Um, so, Joan, it sounds like what you did was, um, and I want to probe this a little bit by using the law creatively, that through the center, it wasn't just that you were litigating, you were also um, writing articles that shaped opinion and practice. Yeah. In fact, at the Center for Work-Life Life Law, we have never litigated, um, partly because we were mommies and we didn't want the hassle, <laughs> um, but mostly because I, um, from the very beginning, I've had a very specific model of change, which is that we only do things that can produce a concrete change within a two- to five-year time frame. And in the United States, a lot of that is working with employers, because a lot of the things that employers do are not, in fact, mandated by productivity. They're produced by um, <clears throat> gender stereotypes and sometimes racial stereotypes. And if you can point out to employers that what they're doing doesn't make economic sense, you can use what I call using capitalism as a change lever and in the United States, capitalism is one of the most effective levers for social change. So, Joan, this is um, an amazingly powerful framing, this model of change with a two- to five-year goal. is kind of your litmus test of how you approach projects and take them on. How yeah, we've accomplished a lot with it. And in doing that, how hard was it to get um, your partners, your stakeholders, um, to step back from the big-picture goals, the loftier view, and dial into that kind of focused work? You know, there's a, um, there's a, there's a real mismatch between the model of philanthropy and this model of change. Um, 
So philanthropy tends, like everything else, to go in fads. And for example, <clears throat> you know, over almost all of the money for the past, oh, say ten years, has gone to work on paid leave. Now I think paid leave is super important. Um, but as I always say, it only doesn't take three months to raise a child; it takes twenty years. <laughs> right. um, and um, and so, but we've been very successful with this change model. As I say, we've created the modern part-time policy in that is now in use in law firms throughout the country. We've created the area of law that allows mothers to sue. We have um, crystallized the area of law that allows people to get pregnancy. Uh, accommodations under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Now we're creating, um, crystallizing the area of law around nursing discrimination. So this has been a very, and we've created a lot of social science. We've created the social science uh, now on what's now called the maternal wall, Mm -hmm. which was a a term that was virtually unknown. Um, And there was very little social science, but now we've created the social science so that people now that you've heard the famous study where you give people identical resumes, one Mm -hmm. but not the other, mentioning the PTA and the mother's 80% less likely to be hired, uh, 79 actually, 79% less likely to be hired and only half as likely to be promoted. That research grew, grew directly out of our working groups. The working group on flexibility stigma produced that research, another of the working groups gave rise to the gap stable scheduling study. So this has been a very powerful model of social change for us. It's also exciting to hear um, the way that a center anchored in an academic institution can be integrally connected to the real world and create social change with that kind of disciplined framework. Well, I became, uh, there was a, a famous philosophy book called How to Do Things with Words, and that's why I became a lawyer. How to Do you Things know. with Words. Okay, we're going to have to put that on the reading list. And that's what, there's uh, a long, long, long ago linguistic philosophy book, but it had a big influence on me, and I became a lawyer to do things with words, you know. Well, that's, and so if I'm not, uh, we like to say that our informal motto at Work Life Law, and we, I'll scrub it up for the air, is we, we get stuff done. Um, I think that's going to be part of the holiday gift package for my daughter, by the way. Um, So one of the places where you did a lot with words and pulled together, I think, a lot of the work that you did um, in the years that preceded it was what works for women at work. Mm -hmm. And you had done a lot of work publishing. It looks like you've had a lot of fantastic partners over the years. Um, But you had an unusual fantastic partner for that book. Who was she and how did you choose her? Well, I had... um Unbending Gender was very well written for a professor, (laughs) Uh, and it had gradually, I had gradually come to understand that I did not understand how to write for an outreach, for uh, a, you know, broad outreach audience, and so when I decided to write What Works for Women at Work, and I'll I'll say in a minute why I decided to do that, I decided I needed um, the best writer I could find. And um, it happened that my daughter had uh, had graduated from college, and she was going on a long um, trip to South America and was worried about, she quit her job, she, she worried about what she was going to do when she came back. And I said, well, if you can't get anything else, you can always help me write the book. And I was completely horrified when she basically withdrew from um, a promising job uh, prospects at Google and help me write the book. 
<laughs> I was going like, oh, that's not what I ever meant, though, but that's awesome. Beware she's, of what um, you wish for. Yeah, she is. Um, but she's a, she's a brilliant writer. Um, in fact, she's, um, she's now written a novel and is starting the second. So she's a, a far better writer than me and um, actually taught me how to write a public outreach book, which has led to um, the article in HBR and um, white, the book, the, the new book, White Working Class. Rachel basically taught me to write. So, and her name's Rachel Dempsey, yes? Rachel Dempsey, yes. So people can look her up, go find her work. Um, And by the way, for those of you who just tuned in, you're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, here on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and my guest today is Joan C. Williams, distinguished professor of law and founding director of the Center for Work-Life Law at the University of California, Hastings College of the Law, and the author of What Works for Women at Work and the White Working Class. So, Joan, in writing this book with Rachel, how much of her contribution was that she's a talented writer? And how much was it that um, she has the perspective of somebody who's of a different generation? Um, what were, how did those things come together as you were working on it? It was 100% of both. She, um, she, I, I was very interested in, in, in working with a much younger woman. Um, because I think that the whole point of what works for women at work is that I had gotten really disillusioned at that point with organizational change and said, you know, I, I get it. These organizations aren't going to change. The kind of nonsense that I was putting up with in 1982 is still going on. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to, to, um, uh, to arm women to wade through the, through the crap, pardon me, <laughs> and um, with the best advice evidence-based advice from the most politically savvy people I could find. And um, so I had crystallized basically 40 years of social science into four basic patterns of bias and had gone around and interviewed the, the savviest women I could find and said, hey, here's what bias looks like. Any of that sound familiar? 96% said yes. I was a little disillusioned to see that. Um, But then they gave unbelievably good advice about how they had navigated it successfully. So I had that, and I had done the research. But what Rachel did was tied it in with popular culture in a very powerful way and um, coined things. In fact, I was just at a major tech conference yesterday, and one young woman came up to me and said that she'd been in a really hard place in her career and that what works for women had work uh, at work had helped her, and specifically that it had shown her that she she wasn't crazy. And well, that was written by Rachel. That was like <laughs> Rachel, like I'm I uh, I'm not crazy. And another thing that was coined by Rachel is the office housework. Mm-hmm. That comes from Rachel and what works for women at work, and that has transformed the conversation nationwide about whether women get equal access to. Um, to to work to quality work assignments. Um, the other thing, though, that Rachel brought, other than her brilliant writing and phrase making, is that she and I are really different, um, and we're different in ways that are very characteristic of our generations. Uh, I am in my 60s, and so I, I like to explain to women my age. Um, when we entered the workplace, we were on the long tail. We were not <laughs> towards the middle of the distribution. We were on the, on the very long tail of comfort with masculinity, drivenness, 
ability to tune out or willingness to tune out social cues um, to, uh, to, to achieve our goals, because after all, all of the social cues were telling us that we should, um, we should peel back our careers and stay home. And, um, and so um, you actually see this in other women my age, like Elizabeth Warren, for example. I mean, her strength is her weakness. Her strength is her willing, willingness to barrel through and t- tune out those cues and do the good big things that need to be done. But that's also, you know, the weakness many of many uh, of women in my generation. And um, <clears throat> Rachel's generation, from my point of view, is just like more femi. I mean, I, I never wore pants until Rachel fell in love with skirts at age two. And I went like, Oh, I guess skirts are fun. (laughs) So how much of that is was by necessity? Um, Oh, yeah, we would have been crushed like a beetle. Exactly. So that you were in an inhospitable environment. And if you weren't going to lose your ambition, and your ability to be successful, you almost had no choice. You, you literally had no choice. Um, and the thing that I did, which was, which was kind of quirky, is most women of my generation realized that kind of femininity was a setup to be shafted, and they distanced themselves from it. Mm-hmm. Um, I used my power as a professor to kind of try to reverse the devaluation of feminine caregiving. So I did something a little quirky. But in many other ways, I'm just a typical woman of my generation. So, for example, the second pattern of gender bias, um, uh, we call it the tightrope, where women have to walk a tightrope between being seen as too masculine Mm -hmm. and therefore respected but not liked, or too feminine and therefore liked but not respected. Um, I am very masculine, on still on a lot of dimensions in which Rachel is much more conventionally feminine. And uh, I would have written the book in a way that a whole group of younger women didn't feel that comfortable with. And working with a much younger um, woman like Rachel helped us kind of negotiate that as part of the writing. How much of that aspect of that difference of um, distancing ourselves from our femininity versus um, sitting in it and owning it and being comfortable with it um, is a byproduct of Rachel growing up with a mother as a role model who could succeed in the world? Um, Was it pop culture and that we saw women owning, like Madonna, owning their femininity? Did you and she ever talk about why the difference between the two of you? Um, I I just think, I I think I go back to the sign curve there. I mean, I think that the women, first of all, I was a lot more femi than the women who came a generation before me. One famous, famous feminist, Barbara Bergman, referred to my first book, that uh, the book about the ideal worker, um, Unbending Gender. She referred to it as that anti-feminist screed. Ooh. She was so angry about um, <clears throat> how, I had, how I had talked about all these stereotypically feminine things. Um, I think it's a natural progression. Um, now I think women who are entering the workplace are much more towards the center of the sign curve. They are less unconventional, less driven very often than the women who, um, who entered the workforce as I did in the 1980s. And um, they also, uh, in a way that my generation didn't see, um, they, 
they don't they don't think of femininity as a setup to be shafted. They think of it as something that they enjoy and that has been devalued. And when I run it through my head, I agree with them. <laughs> yes, me too. Even though um, I'm much closer to your age than I am to Rachel's, and I have to say, it there's a way that it makes me a little uncomfortable. I'm a little put off by it, and I have to ask myself why. And I I wonder how much of it is that we didn't feel included in the workforce, so we uh, curtailed those things that would have made us stand out. Yeah, I mean, this is an example of the the fourth pattern of gender bias. We call it the tug of war. Mm -hmm. And that is when gender bias against women fuels conflict among women. And, um, I mean, sometimes this is um, mommy wars of, like, I didn't take that long leave or go part-time, and my kids are fine. Sort of like, are you calling me a bad mother? It's A lot of this gender war stuff stems from identity threat. Whereas I always say to women my age, she ain't, she ain't calling you any kind of mother. This is her life, not your life. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but but the, the, we, we, we've been talking about the pass-through of tightrope bias. Like one generation of women saying to others, you're doing femininity wrong. And the younger generation, you know, with that little girly voice, how does she expect to get ahead? The older women um, might say, and then the younger women go like, you know, we don't want your sorry ass lives. You just turned into men, (laughs) you know. So that's um, that is a classic generational tug of war among women. You're doing femininity wrong. No, you're doing it. And it also seems that it feels, I don't know whether it's a byproduct of, contributing to, um, a world where we're increasingly aware of what it takes to make an inclusive workplace, which is accepting people for who they authentically are and not expecting them to change. Yes, yes. Although that's such a complicated idea because, of course, we all change the minute we walk into work, right? And that's, that's at some level, that's a, that's a core requirement. Um, I think the problem becomes when there are unspoken uh, male and masculine norms of the sort that we've been talking about or unspoken um, norms surrounding whiteness, that's when the problem comes in. And that, and because that's when we're, um, our biases are coming up, we're judging each other, and it's shaping our, be- our interactions um, when they really shouldn't be. Is that a fair way? Yeah. Of- I mean, it's, it's fair to say you have to behave in certain ways when you're at work. That's why they call it work. That's fair. <laughs> <clears throat> but what's not fair is that um, you, have to, you, have to weigh, you have to behave in ways that make me feel comfortable as a white person, um, that make you feel profoundly uncomfortable as a person of color. That's not fair. So it's. I appreciate that you're pointing up that this generational divide um, actually is hard for women, and that um, how often are we putting younger women in a difficult spot without being aware of it as a result? I mean, there's you know there's just deeply structured patterns where part of the artifact of being uh, of encountering bias is being pitted against your own group. Um, for example, I studied engineering, and there here, Marissa Meyer, former um, CEO of Yahoo, is the best example. When she was um, in engineering at Google, she said, I'm not a girl at Google. I'm a geek at Google. Um, she had figured out that, um, <clears throat> that the, the, the boys' club ran the place, 
and she was going to be um, part of the boys' club, not part of the girls, because she wanted to be a winner, not a loser. Um, this is often called the queen bee, as if this was just like another bitch with another personality <laughs> problem. But it's just women operating in an environment of, of gender bias. And also some scarcity, because it sounds like part of the queen bee dynamic <laughs> is when um, you think it's a zero-sum game. That there's, you know, some one person advances, another one loses. Yeah, sometimes it's that you think it's a zero-sum game. Often it is a zero-sum game um, where, you know, there's room for only one woman, so that woman's damn well going to be me. So if you have an environment of tokenism, it fuels this tug of war. Right, and so that's where it seems incredibly important to sort out, is it, that we're taught to be protective or we feel frightened because of the signals we're getting? Um, And when is it that the environment really is tokenized that way and needs to be pushed back at? Yeah, it's just somebody taught me to to think of this as which problems are inside my head and which problems are outside (laughs) my head. And an awful lot of the problems that women are told are inside their heads are, in fact, outside their heads. Here, the most important example is the <clears throat> women don't negotiate. Well, the reason women don't negotiate as often or as hard as men is that it often blows up in their face when they do because prescriptive gender stereotypes, this is the tightrope again, um, see the good woman as someone who's modest, self-effacing, and nice. Mm-hmm. And so the prescriptive stereotypes of men are that men are competitive, ambitious, and direct. So a man who's negotiating, oh, he's a go-getter. A woman who's negotiating, like, who does she think she is? She's going to be difficult, hard to work with. And there are studies that show that. Um, and so this, you have this, you know, one finding that women don't negotiate as much, and that gets wild attention in the press. And then this other uh, study, the st- other studies that show, here's why. Right. This is not in their heads. <laughs> this is outside of their heads. And then you have corporate programs teaching women to negotiate more. And my reaction is, excuse me, there's gender bias in this environment. Teach the people in the environment to not penalize women for negotiating. Interrupt the bias. Don't just goose step women into a situation that's ultimately going to hurt them. Um, You were talking about how we can, that question of when do we change ourselves, when do we try and change the world around us, and how we interrupt bias. And you had also mentioned, you've been talking about kind of four key types of bias that we experience in the workplace. Um, I want to explore how we interrupt the bias, but first, could you walk us through what are those four types of bias? Yeah, the first I call prove it again, and that's that some groups have to prove themselves more than others. The research shows, actually our research now shows that this, uh, and other research too, this happens by race as well as by gender. For example, if you, we had a national study of American engineers, and about one-third of white men said that they had to prove themselves more than their colleagues, but about two-thirds of women did, and about two-thirds of people of color. The, The second is, the technical name is prescriptive bias. Um, we call it the tightrope. That is that a, a narrower range of behavior is accepted from some groups than from others. 
So for women, as I mentioned, this is basically trying to walk that tightrope between being seen as too masculine and so unlikable or too feminine and so not competent or lacking executive presence. That, um, that tightrope is actually narrowest for Asian-American women who report more pressure to behave in feminine ways and more pushback if they don't. Um, that also operates by race. For example, being seen as an angry black person is not a great career move um, no matter what your gender the third is the maternal wall, and that's gender bias triggered by motherhood. Often women who women return from maternity leave and find they have to prove themselves all over again. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the fourth we've also introduced, it's called the tug of war, when implicit bias against a group fuels conflict within the group. And again, that happens both by race and by gender. And with each of these, um, it adds the burden that the person has to carry just to succeed every day at work. Yeah, I mean, in a sentence, one of the reasons that um, white men from elite backgrounds dominate so many environments is that they have to prove themselves less than other people, much more likely to be um, given opportunities based on potential than other groups, and a much wider range of behavior is accepted from them, and so their office politics are often much less complicated. And also that um, they're not given the same limitations, they're not judged, um, and they don't have this, they don't experience the same internal conflict. Exactly. Um, Yeah, they don't have to worry about whether, you know, the the easiest example is, here's how a man asks for a raise. I have a competing offer. Will you give me a raise? Um, In order to ask for a raise, a woman has to be much more careful, much more politic. Mm -hmm. So is it fair to say that this is, um, when we talk about privilege, this is an example of it, that men are operating within the workforce without these barriers, um, where women and people of color are facing them every single day? Yeah, I mean, the research shows that it's basically the the group that has the fewest, uh, the smoothest sailing, that kind of Mm -hmm. visible escalator, is a um, very specific group, extroverted white men from elite backgrounds. And that elite background is important here. It really is. There's one study that shows, um, that gave a, one of these identical resume study uh, studies. They were both white men, but one listed elite interests like um, uh, polo and classical music, but the other listed blue-collar interests like pick up basketball and counseling first-gen students. And um, so Mr. Mr. Polo got 12 times the number of callbacks oh as Mr. Pick up basketball. As and if so, polo is necessary for career success. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so one of, the, one of the ways that the diversity conversation has gone seriously awry is to talk about white men in general. And one of the, the I've developed a new approach to to bias uh, bias training, and one of the characteristics of that approach is that it in- integrates not only race and gender, but also class origin, <clears throat> age, disability, and points out that some of these gender stereotypes also uh, penalize modest men, for example. And I have literally seen, when I have been giving this workshop, men who are, whose bodies were 
oriented like way away from me when I talk about that study that I just mentioned, Mr. Polo versus Mr. <laughs> Pickup. Um, they're literally they move their, uh, their their chairs around and start to pay attention because if for the first time they're feeling heard too. I'll bet. Well, you can imagine how irritating it is if you're what I a first generation professional. I actually call them class migrants <clears throat> because in some ways you're you're having to, it's like being a migrant because mm-hmm. the culture of the professional managerial elite, the top 20% is so different from the culture, kind of blue-collar culture, people in the middle, much less people in poverty. It's so different, and you know you are not privileged. And to hear yourself discussed as, you know, one of those privileged people, it's, it's irritating. Yeah, to say the least. So earlier you were talking about um, bias interrupters as necessary. You were talking about it particular to women negotiating for raises as instead of teaching women how to be more savvy and crafty at asking for the raise, how do you create an environment that's more um, likely to grant it and to, to see their worth? And that yes. bias interruption is an important effort that needs to include these categories that we often and overlook like class and age and disability. Um, so talk to me about bias interrupters, because not just an idea, it's a whole system that you've developed. It is, yes. It, uh, it's, <clears throat> there, it's full open-sourced toolkits um, to interrupt bias in a way that's evidence-based and metrics-driven uh, at www.biasinterrupters.com. Dot org, and they're being used by many, many companies, large and small. Um, I was at this tech conference yesterday, and two huge tech companies were telling me how closely they were looking at bias interrupters and using them. Um, the, the, this was set forth in 2014 in an article in, in Harvard Business Review called Hacking Tech's Diversity Problem, and which I said, you know, the basic tools of the diversity industrial complex don't work. Uh, one-shot bias training, an ERG, <clears throat> these things are, uh, are very, you know, they're good things, but they're non-responsive. Mm-hmm. Because if you have a diversity problem, it's probably because these subtle forms of bias are constantly being transmitted through your basic business systems, through hiring through assignments, through performance evaluations, even in meetings. So we have full open source toolkits to address each one of those business systems and are beginning to have really concrete evidence that they work. We did one experiment with a little simple two-and-a-half-page document that I drafted uh, that describes in really concrete, non-judgmental terms the common ways that bias plays out in performance evaluations. And <clears throat> we just gave that two-pager two and, and uh, read through it in an audio tape to people um, in, in, in an experiment and found that it just doing that alone raised the bonuses and performance evaluations of black men and women and white women. That's incredible, just from that effort. Just from that effort. For, and online, there's a full toolkit of, these are, these are quite simple tweaks that a business can use. You don't have to completely reinvent the wheel. You just have to use evidence um, and, and uh, to tweak your process. And let's go back to the negotiation, because that's an example of a bias interrupter in the hiring toolkit. 
Um, one study found that if you add the words salary negotiable mm-hmm. to your job ad, that <clears throat> it um, can tend to decrease the gender differential between men and women. And the reason is that just adding those words is often enough to send the message to women we expect you to negotiate yes. your salary. We're not going to penalize you for it. And so women know to ask, and the employers know to expect it. For those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking with Professor Joan C. Williams, founding director of the Center for Work-Life Law at the University of California, Hastings College of Law, and author of What Works for Women at Work. So, Joan, I want to take a step back for a second, because this is powerful stuff. Um, one, reinforcing, this was work we did at Wharton People Analytics too, that a single bias intervention, it's not a silver bullet. It's not going to change everything. Because as you said, this stuff is reinforced all the time. Yes. So let's talk about the pipeline, starting at the beginning of where you can make these focused, small actions that have big rewards. So in the hiring process, what's one of the first steps you can take? Well, the first step you have to take is to collect the right metrics. And the first thing is that you should look at the demographic breakdown um, of your the whole pool you look at, who gets through a resume review, who gets called to an interview, who survives the interview and gets an offer, and then what are the salaries <clears throat> that they start at. That way you can see, number one, you may not have a problem. Mm -hmm. Um, And number two, if you do have a problem, you can pinpoint where it is. Because, for example, what you have to do to assemble an initial pool is quite different from what you have to do to make sure that bias isn't playing out in interviews. So in other words, you can't manage what you don't measure. And you've got to assess where you are to start. As a mentor of mine said, you know, if you ain't keeping score, you're only practicing. (laughs) And when it comes to diversity, too many companies are still only practicing. So once you get to the point as an organization where you realize that you're winding up without a diverse pool, that that, um, when you look at your resumes, when you look at who gets selected for the interview, who makes it through the interview for the second interview, um, you're not advancing the underrepresented groups. What's your next step? Um, The the, um, number one, first of all, let me say that in many, many professional jobs, not all, but many, hiring is not the key problem. Mm. The key problem is what happens after people okay. get here. But let's go um, back to hiring. If you don't, aren't assembling, and I'll just give you one bias interrupter for each stage. Great. If you, if you are not ha- don't have a representative group, you probably have to um, work, look outside your usual networks for candidates. Certainly referral hiring is really great if you want to reproduce the demography that is already at a certain level of the company. If you don't, then you got to keep track and see if referral hiring is corroding your diversity. And then you've got to to do standard things like reaching out beyond your network. Mm -hmm. Um, in, um, in, uh, In resume review, some companies are going to blind resumes so that you can't tell um, who, you know, the race or gender of the person on the resume, that's an example of the kind of thing you do at resume review. Then for interviews, um, we have actually a, um, a handout um, that, you're, that you can 
just download off the web and give people to prepare them for interviews. Um, but the other thing you have to do is, and this is one of the usefulnesses of, the bi- of a bias training, <clears throat> a bias training, as you point out, can't, is not the solution because you can't change a culture by doing anything once. Right. Um, but it is important to give people some understanding of what bias looks like on the ground. And if women are being challenged in the way that men aren't, and women who stand up for themselves is being, are being written off as difficult, then you're not going to get many women surviving the process. So those are just some of the bias interrupters in hiring. And we also have this one of these two-pagers that describes how bias typically plays out in hiring, um, such as the example I just gave. So that also can be a very powerful thing to do. I want to pause for a moment while we're on hiring, because I want to come back to Mr. Polo and Mr. Pickup mm-hmm. and make sure that we're considering where uh, class is a factor here, because it's one th- I've tried it, where you can blind a resume so that you're not aware of the gender identity in the name. Um, or of maybe the race or the you know the nationality of the person who's applying, but there's lots of other information in a resume. And last and as we joked before, um, polo is not a prerequisite for most jobs. No, it is not. It so is not. if we want to become more conscious of how to see the talents of all of our applicants, how do we focus away from our perception of things or our biases to actually um, making decisions around the things that matter? Well, you know, at some level it's a complicated question. At some level it's a really simple question. Um, when you look at the interests on a resume, um, you should not look to be um, uh, who's, uh, uh, someone whose interests that exactly match your own. But at a deeper level, many companies, and again, I was just at this tech conference, are looking hard at people who don't have college degrees and looking hard at people from, um, from elite, who are not from elite universities. Because, for example, I remember in studying, in, in researching the book White Working Class, I think the statistic, statistic was that Harvard has um, as many people from the top 1% as it does from the bottom 60%. Wow. Yeah. So that's serious so, overrepresentation there. Yeah. Now, as someone who went to Yale, Harvard, and MIT, I'm going like if – you can go to Yale, Harvard, and MIT and, and graduate debt-free, definitely do that. But that's not typically um, what uh, are the options that are open to people in, um, in blue, even blue-collar, in, even mm-hmm. middle-class families. They don't have the same options. They're much more likely to stay close to home. Blue-collar men are much more apprehensive about taking on huge debt because they know that in our society still sadly they're being judged as providers and coming to a relationship with a huge debt corrodes your ability to be a provider. We have an incredible maldistribution in the United States of both income of income wealth and opportunity all three and it's certainly shaping our national elections. It's also shaping who we even look at for high-level jobs, these high-stakes, high-status jobs. 
For those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with Professor Joan C. Williams. She is the founding director of the Center for Work-Life Law at the University of California, Hastings College of Law, and the noted author of What Works for Women at Work and her book, which just came out in paperback, The White Working Class, Overcoming Class Cluelessness in America. So, Joan, this is a huge issue because it sounds like we're ignoring a big portion of the population and missing out on their talents. Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, I be- I began to focus on this way back uh, way back when I mentioned much earlier. I decided not to work on national legislation because I figured there would be no useful national legislation that helped mothers. And the reason there won't be um, is exactly the reason that explains economic populism, both in the United States and in Europe because this book has been very influential really throughout the world. It's been translated into French and Japanese. What it talks about is that there's a very different what I call the class culture gap between the top 20% in in the United States and elsewhere of professionals and managers, and not people who are poor, the bottom 30%, but really the 50% in the middle, and that in the professional managerial elite, we're very focused on self-development. You know, that's how we got our jobs. That's how we keep our jobs. And we're very focused on sophistication. That's how we signal our high human capital to people who are going to matter to us, both socially and professionally. But that's really, really different from people in the kind of broad middle classes now being hollowed out. Um, <clears throat> they, they're very focused on self-discipline. And the institutions that aid self-discipline, religion, military, traditionally, traditional family values, um, they, they had traditionally, and this is true across race, um, a real focus on you know, get, get the kind of self-discipline it takes to get up every day and show up to a not very glorious job um, and, uh, on time and without an attitude. Um, and the, they're not interested in disruption because if you're in a blue-collar job or pink-collar job and you're disruptive, you just get fired. So it's a you big, so it's a big part of this, Joan, that um, the, the ability to focus on self-actualization, on impact on the world around us, is in many ways a luxury. And that the working class, the middle class, um, really the economics of things are so tight and so highly pressured that the focus has to be on kind of a more essential discipline? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, they are one one serious indulgence away from poverty and homelessness. And so in what is the um, framework around women working in this portion of our population? Is it that women, because um, I think the statistics are that it can actually, women aren't working for self-actualization and that it can be too expensive to go to work. Yeah, I mean, uh, outside the top 20%, very few people are working for self-actualization. Um, and one of the things that, one of the reasons we haven't had better work, work family um, legislation is that in the middle class, among the poor, about 30% of the poor receive subsidies for childcare. Now they're 
sporadic, they're scarce, they're stigmatized, that's true, but they're there. There are almost no subsidies as a, for the middle 50% child care subsidies. And so these families are tag-teaming. They rarely see each other. They have three to six times the national divorce rate, which is what tag-teaming families have. They're really stretched. Often now they have kind of jobs that don't have benefits. They may not have full-time hours. And so they're desperate for to achieve the kind of stability that their parents or grandparents had. And the the bottom line of economic populism is that who knew it's about economics. Right. <laughs> um, and the research of the Otour group has found that that one of the effects of globalization um, has been to hollow out the middle class of advanced industrialized countries at the same time that the the, the top one percent has benefited enormously from globalization and the Chinese middle class has benefited enormously from globalization and so it's not too surprising that the a lot of the fury that's driving American politics has focused on various manifestations of globalization. Joan, it, um, it's a, an, a stunning and compelling um, case and it shines a light on something I don't think we talk about often enough. With the three minutes we have left, if um, hopefully people are concerned about this, um, we know that there are a number of people, me included, who have been very concerned about the state of national politics. Um, what would you recommend for those of us who want to see things change and may be newly sensitized to um, the, the realities of America's middle class and working class? Well, at the risk of being self-promoting, I would suggest that you read White Working Class, which literally takes two hours to read, um, and think about um, what things look like from the point of view who is someone who is smart, an ethical person, but does not have a college education. And the book will help you understand why some of those people have been so deeply disillusioned with American politics that they have gone all the way towards supporting um, a gentleman like Mr. Trump. <laughs> and also for those out there who want to also take the next step and figure out how can they interrupt bias in their workplace? Where can they find bias interrupters? Um, well, there's an article um, in actually this month's Harvard Business Review, the magazine, the actual physical magazine, about individual bias interrupters that mm -hmm. anyone can use starting today and tomorrow. And for organizational interrupters and more on individual interrupters that you can use just on your own, it's at www.biasinterrupters.org, full open source toolkits with downloadable open source tools you can use today. And Joan, if people want to find, oh, what, the other nine books that you've written, the amazing scholarship you've done, and also the other online systems you've created to help women lawyers and nurses and professors, where can they find that? Work Life Law. Okay, fantastic. Or my own personal webpage. <laughs> and <laughs> your Twitter handle, at Joan C. Williams? You got it. Okay. And if you want to follow me, I'm at Laura Zarrow. Um, so, Joan, thank you so much for joining us today. We learned so much, and it's an honor to have you on the show. Laura, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate the invitation.
our, our pleasure as well. And thank you all for listening. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter at our new handle at SXM Business. I'm at Laura's Arrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Have a great week, everybody, and go interrupt the bias. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.